yeah. Welcome to Give Us a King, a prophetic type of our day. Episode 25. Oh yeah, that's true. Episode 25, <laughs> presented by I'm Farrell. And Rhonda Pickering. And we're just happy to be here. And today we get to go into the book of Samuel, which kind of in a start, we kind of have to go into the fact that Samuel himself, as a prophetic type, actually is the first use or first mention of Samuel's as a seer in the Bible. We have never had any prophet referred to as a seer before Samuel, which is very fascinating just to know. But the story of Samuel, as you know, was a story of an answer to the prayer of Hannah. And she prayed to have a son and promised to dedicate him to the Lord if the Lord blessed her womb, that she might be able to have a son. So the story of Hannah it starts with her prayers, much similar to many of the types of the Bible when you got like Sarah and um, Rebecca and many of them who had problems conceiving in their beginning. Anyway, she's another one of those who is blessed with a son and she promises that son to the Lord. And then he comes into a situation where with Eli, he does not bear good tidings of good news to Eli, who is the high priest at the time, but who has allowed his children to, allowed his children to not be well disciplined or at least not pulled out of the temple duties. And therefore they, they use their temple duties to oppress the people and to take advantage of them and that's really difficult but in the beginning let's just go jumping into the name of Samuel and we realize that Samuel his name which by definition starts with the sheen mem vav aleph lamed and it means his name is el or elohim the beginning of elohim being the beginning of elohim it is short form of god so el any of the names that end with L are usually figurative of someone who is named after God. Um, Michael, Michael, Samuel, um, you could go on and on with Gabriel and, and Raphael and many of the names in the, in the times where Samuel is one of those names. And he separates the chaos securely with strong teaching. So he uses his ability to teach and to reveal the Word of God to fulfill his duties as a judge in Israel. So Samuel is a really good example. In the scriptures it says that Samuel is heard of God or asked of God. That's another definition that, right. that we have heard too, that he hears the voice of God. Well, we know that's true as he sat as a boy in the temple and kept thinking it was Eli that was talking to him and it wasn't. Right. It was the Lord. And then he ends up having to bear that bad news to Eli. And um, So that being said, um, Shemuel, or Shemuel, I think is how you pronounce it, he is the first mention of Seir, and I mentioned that before. So this, this person that we know is kind of the main character um, in the whole book of Samuel, obviously, the book's named after him. So. And, and he will be the last judge of Israel because right, he before will they anoint kings. The kings yeah. Yep, and he will anoint two kings in his life. Um, the first one being Saul and the second one being David. King David being a better type than Saul was. Anyway, so let's just jump into the story. 
and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in the ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all nations. So Samuel is being pressed upon by his people to give them a king, and the people want a king. And, you know, the, the whole idea of people wanting a king is not the most favorable, favorable situation to the Lord. And so Samuel tries to talk them out of it. He tries very much to convince them that they don't want a king. Well, what would be more favorable to the Lord than a king? Because obviously the situation of the judges where everyone's doing right in their own eyes is... is not favorable Not either. bringing his blessing either. Right. But the whole idea is a more revelatory, direct relationship with the Lord is what the Lord looks for. And when we seek for a king, we're looking for a, a, a person to insulate us so that we don't have to take the same responsibility we would if we if we were answering to a king to but a, in reality if it's a, a Sinai right, covenant right and, and but in reality in a righteous covenant that king does have to take that responsibility for the people or well, else everything least, goes south from there well yeah but that's what Samuel's basically saying here but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord so Samuel's concerned with their desire for a king he's not happy about it and so he prays to the lord and according to all the works which they have done since the day that i brought them out of egypt even unto this day wherein they have forsaken me and served other gods so do they also unto thee in other words what he's saying is don't take this personal samuel this is this is what they're doing to me and he is actually going to evaluate um, the whole thing kind of personally to begin with and God's saying hey they're rejecting me they're not rejecting you now therefore hearken unto their voice howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of king that shall reign over them so he's the Lord tells Samuel to show them the idea of what is likely to be when they get their king or what usually kings turn into. So that is a very, um, what I would call, <clears throat> solemn warning. Because, you know, we do have examples of good kings. We have um, King Benjamin, which is a really good example of a king. But on the whole, the whole history of Israel's and Israel's kings is but a small percentage of good kings that come out of it. And... <clears throat> So Samuel is trying to, in this Samuel chapter 8, which is the part of our verses in Samuel that we're supposed to be discussing, he is told to tell them of what is the outcome of having a king. And so let's just kind of, and I I put up uh, the picture of Longshanks as an example of a bad king. (laughs) And, 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 um, Braveheart, and so I'm just going to share with you a little bit of what the outcome of a king's can be. This will be the manner of a king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons. He will appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. So the king usually 
in fact, in almost every instance, they usually get a little authority, as they suppose, as spoken of in the Doctrine and Covenants, and they immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. And that is the warning we have to anybody who receives appointment, but particularly when it's secular power. It's really very quickly can become corrupt. But we see both in the sons of Eli and in Samuel's two sons that even the best laid plans can end up with corrupt corruption amongst the ranks, so to speak. Anytime there's a little authority given, corruption is so easily becomes a part of it. And in that, I, I feel like he's warning them, hey, he's going to take your sons and he's going to appoint them to himself. He's going to, he's going to just take over with this, his kingship. And we, uh, <clears throat> we, I wanted to dissect the word king and I wanted to show you that in the Hebrew, the word king comes from Mem Lamed Kof. And Mem Lamed Kof is um, the massive authority to cover. So whenever we give some massive authority to cover for us, we also give them massive authority to control us. And of course, <laughs> we see that coming totally into our lives as we, and in essence, we're saying the same thing in our day. That's what, and I'm not saying we as in the true followers of Christ, but as a nation, as a world, we're almost begging for a king, conceptually. Not necessarily by that title, but conceptually, we're begging for control. Well, and <clears throat> willing to trade freedom for, for control. security. We think security. Right. Okay, but it really, most of the time, it's, it's the same lie Satan sold, sold from the beginning. I will save all of you. Just let me have the glory. And that is what kings usually end up. And we really see very few examples of a righteous king. And most righteous kings don't seek for kingship. They seek to allow the people to have the ability to govern themselves or to go more direct. And if, if it's okay, I'll go real quick to the Book of Mormon in Mosiah where, where Alma is saying that and they're trying to make him king. And he says, um, it is not expedient that we should have a king. For thus saith the Lord, ye shall not esteem one flesh above another or one man shall not think of himself above another. And so often uh, people will say, well, then why are we looking forward to Jesus being our king in the millennial day? And um, the, the bottom line is that mortal kings don't have a high success record. But in verse 8, nevertheless, if it were possible that you could always have just men to be your kings, it would be well for you to have a king. And so that is the scenario when Christ comes as king. In the millennial day. So in concept, what she's basically reading to you is if you had a king that wasn't corruptible, then kings actually is a good form of government. But not when it's the corruption of the flesh. Not when they're in a position that is, when they get a little authority, as they suppose, 
they immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. And, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit when we talk about the Davidic covenant in, in the next lesson where it, in order for a Davidic covenant to be invoked, you actually have to have a righteous king. Well, and we're going to see the flip side of that in Saul becoming filled with exactly. pride. I mean, exactly. we're going to get there just in a little bit here, actually, where Saul starts good. He actually is appointed because he's a, he has a good heart. And then, just like it says in DNC 121, immediately, as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they immediately begin... And then they begin to be possessive of that position. And they they want to keep it. It's like a thirst for power or a thirst for glory. Well, and you always say, you know, absolute power. Corrupts absolutely, yes. And that it's just, and and unfortunately, that's usually true. Well, when we get to the kings of Israel, we'll just do the math on on (laughs) how that worked out. Yeah, it doesn't work out real good for Israel in general. However, there are a few that step forward, like King Benjamin, like King Hezekiah. There is a few along the way. King David. I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? No, you said David. I said Josiah. Oh, Josiah. Okay, I thought you said corrected my We're just naming. Yeah, a few of the good ones. Okay, yeah, (laughs) the the good kings along the way. And Solomon wasn't completely bad, but he did dabble in worship. Let his kingdom get involved in other gods a little bit. Right, by intermarrying. Yeah, um, by trying to make too much peace. Political marriages. Yeah, yeah. with other nations, he kind of compromised a little. And in the name of compromise, sometimes that seems like a good thing, but it's usually not good to compromise. Well, I think it works fine as long as you're hale and healthy and are, are the captain of the ship. But when you get old and everything and then everybody... Kind of goes back to their familiar ground. That's that's yeah. why it's so dangerous. Yeah, and it can become a dangerous thing. Now, compromise in non-principle matters isn't necessarily a bad thing, but compromise in morality is a bad thing. We and that's actually where I'm going to go later, um, a little bit when I get into more of Samuel's Samuel's role as a seer. Anyway, the covering staff of authority over the chaos of the blood. So basically, a king writing his name is, is, says that he has power over life. He, 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 can, he can, and we know even from the story of David, that he fell subject to one temptation at one time to make a bad call. And um, that's a heartbreak. But he had that power, that's the point. One bad decision can can affect so much when you're a king. And so we need to not have so much authority in one individual until they are perfect, you know, until they are like Christ and they are a, a true Davidic king. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful thing when we have that kind of a king. Very rare, almost impossible amongst men. <clears throat> the word melak uh, is to be given the right to complete reign over all who dwell in the kingdom. Uh, it's from the root malak, which is basically to reign, to have authority. To It comes from his, his been given that authority. 
And so to have a king is, is usually kind of just giving all that power to one person. Makes an efficient government, um, like our government that was originally given to us by the Founding Fathers, is quite um, inefficient as far as quick maneuvering, quick responses. And they tried to cover that with the executive branch, but, but in essence, it's, it's, it's filled with checks and balances, which is good because we are men, but it's not as efficient as a kingdom. However, it doesn't have the ability to be corrupted as quickly. I, I was just going to say, you made, you made a statement that to have a mortal righteous king is almost impossible. And I, I, will, I would say that I think that it is almost impossible left to our mortal nature. Yes. But through, through the grace of Christ and through the atonement of Christ, just men can be made perfect through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, and I think that is why... In the end time, you'll have kings and queens of the Gentiles because the, the gospel plan has been building since the beginning. And first we had the law, and then we had the atonement and, and the, and of Jesus Christ that covered us with grace. And then in the end time, when you put the law and the covering of the atonement of Jesus Christ on mortals, then you can have... Righteous kings arise and create well, and, the kings and queens of the Gentiles in the end time. And we're supposed to be anointed to be kings and queens yeah. of the Gentiles. So, <laughs> excuse me. So we are in a position where the goal is for us to become those righteous kings and queens. Right. And so I, 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 but, I, I wanted to qualify the almost impossible. On our own, it's almost impossible. Well, and there it is. The pure love of Christ can yeah. make you a righteous or a just man made perfect. In that order. Yeah. Just man, then made perfect. And the righteous kings that we've named were righteous because of their belief and their faith in Christ. And, and Yes, King Benjamin being the one that stands out. Yeah. Kind of in the forefront, in a sense. Okay, so we've kind of addressed the king idea and how dangerous a king is when it's flesh. And, uh, and yet, we all want to be part of the kingdom of God, which means that we want to be part of his kingship. But there is no question that he is a righteous king. Yes. Okay, He fills that role that you read in the Book of Mormon where it's a righteous king. And he will take your fields. This is back to what kings will do, and this is what Samuel is telling them. Your vineyards and your olive yards even the best of them, and give them to his servants. So he's going to tax you. He's going to take things to be able to reign and have service. And boy, if we're seeing this in, in technicolor in our country as we head more towards that well, in, dictator in, kingship. Yeah, in the internet, dictator king, you know, it doesn't say tax. It says plunder. Yeah, well, in a way, they're pretty close to the same term. <laughs> Okay, as long if you if you uh, when it gets out of hand when it gets out of hand, it's pretty close to the same thing. It's it's pretty much the same, you know. In our day, the the, the dictators or the rulers are hardly visible because the Book of Mormon calls it what secret combinations. Oh, yeah. So it's the are the, the real leaders who are who are orchestrating the world's affairs are hardly visible. 
They're hiding behind this. And they've actually found the easiest way to be a king and not have to take the responsibility of a king, meaning not be visible. So they they hide in the shadows and they they do their work. Through the the, banks. Yeah, through the (laughs) banks or through the cover of, uh, figuratively, the cover of night, you know, the secret combination concept. And we are experiencing massive secret combinations in our day. And he will take a tenth of your seed. Boy, I wish it was just a tenth sometimes, right? And of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. I think somebody told me that the tax rate in America, when you add it all together, is well over 50%. Yeah, and that's uh, funny because in the Book of Mormon, under that, King Noah, when they're when they're just uh, uh, getting weary under the, the heavy bondage, it's because they have to give 50% of, in, of everything. And I'm like, so, we're over that now. So when, when you add the whole tax rate of everything, you know, consider road tax, consider all the different taxes, we are giving over 50%. Many people have estimated that out. Now, I haven't personally figured that all out, but I've been told that that's true. Okay, so in a sense, we are already in bondage, like as if we were under a king with 50% tax rate. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to work. In other words, he's going to take the best of what you got and he's he's going to tell them what to do and therefore you're 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 losing your freedom to his the, work, not your work. Yeah, to his plan. Uh, and you know, that's it's just a in essence you have when you give up the right to make your own decisions um, then you almost have given up your right to serve God to the same degree, because as much as you're in bondage, it's hard to serve God. If you want to serve God by choice, you need to be free men. You need to be free. I mean, the whole plan of salvation and the whole war in heaven, as we have been taught, was over the right to choose. Agency is at the top of the list. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, Nay, but we shall have a king over us. So what they're saying is, you know, we really don't want this responsibility directly. Just take care of us. Uh, And, you know, it's, you know, the same thing that's been going on since the beginning of time. Your heart kind of goes out to them because, you know, under the Sinai covenant, the only way they can receive the blessings of God is if they're righteous to a man, if they're righteous as a nation. And when your nation starts to crumble and everybody starts to do what's right in their own eyes and everything, and you lose the blessing of God, then you get to a place where... You need someone to rally it together. You need a king, and hopefully you'll get a righteous So that you're insulated from the direct consequences right. of all of the Because if the king can you. be loyal and faithful to God, and you can be faithful to the king, then God can bless you under right. it. And that's, that's, a, that's a foreshadow of the Davidic covenant that we'll be talking about later. Anyway, so Samuel obeys the Lord. The Lord says, go ahead and give him a king. Once again, it's an agency thing. If they want a king, let's give them a king. And he, Eliphah, or however you say that, Eliphah, had a son whose name was Saul, and a choice young man. So in the beginning, the scriptures define Saul as a choice young man. 
and a good and he's goodly and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he from his shoulders and upward he was higher than any other people so not what they're partially referring to here is this man is a big man yeah <laughs> i mean he is he says from his shoulders up. In other words, he well, stands and, ahead above the crowd. In the time least. of big men, like yeah, Goliath. And, <laughs> and, he, and he's a big man and such. And so they wanted, I guess he partially received that role of leader because he would have been a powerful man to lead them into battle. And they're in a lot of times when they need a leader into battle. And then just shortly hereafter, you get introduced to Saul, you get this scripture about, about Samuel, um, which is in, in Samuel 9, 6, where it introduces him as a seer to a large degree. Well, it doesn't actually in this verse, but it, it introduces the nature of Samuel. And he said unto him, Behold, now this is the servants talking, Saul and his servant talking, Behold now, the, there is in the city a man of God, Samuel, and he is an honorable man, and hath all that has said come surely to pass. Now let us go thither, pre-adventure he can show us the way that we should go. Now this is because they've lost their father's asses, and they're having to find where they went to, and so they think to go ask the holy man, so to speak. Yeah, sometimes I'm kind of like, okay, well, you know, that's kind of like, Will you please help you, me find my keys? I know. <laughs> I was thinking that too. Here, here you got Saul uh, Which and one, his like, servant wanting to go ask the president of the church where his donkeys went. You know, but in, and that's, in the that's book kind of, of Mormon, that's in the book kind of, of Mormon, it actually tells us to pray over our flocks and our herds. Yeah, but that's then. that's kind of different than going to the prophet and saying, "Hey, will you tell me where to go?" <laughs> I mean, we it's kind of good if it was something really important, but. This instance, it seems a little. I guess maybe we're just not used to having true seers that you know can just see where your donkeys are. <laughs> yeah, well, but my point I'm trying to say is that wouldn't it be better if they were in that same state themselves? If they could do the prayer and say, Absolutely. "Lead me to my lost sheep," so to speak. Right. You know, that's that's the that's probably the position we should be into, not to burn our leaders with, you know, what color of paint should I put on my house. Um, so in that regard, I get it. But the main thing I wanted to point out is this name Seer. It's the first time in, or what we call first mention in the scriptures, of Seer is describing Samuel. Now, is that interesting? We've never heard it any time prior to Samuel. Well, a lot of scholars say that Samuel was one of the greatest prophets next to Moses. Yeah, and, and we hear that, and, and in one sense of the word, you know, we have the patriarchs at a different kings. level, kind of, and then we have the seers and the prophets that followed. Um, and seer is resh aleph hey, and it's one to whom God's authority or his word is revealed, meaning, and in this instance, I wanted to point out that it's really important to understand this is not the kind of revealing that we would get by the Holy Ghost. This is the kind of revealing that God speaks or shows them in vision to them. It's not the kind of, you know, I felt the Spirit of God come upon me and this is what I felt to do. This is God speaking like he did to Samuel 
when he kept thinking it was Eli talking to him. Right. I was just going to, can I read that real quick? I, I yeah. just thought it was so beautiful. It says, and the child Samuel um, ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days because there was no open vision. There wasn't a seer. And then in verse 2, and Saying it came, Eli had fallen short. Oh, yeah. Eli's the, he's the high priest, but he's not a seer. Right, and you, you, you totally get this uh, in, in verse 2 when it says, And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see, and ere the lamp of God were went out in the temple of the Lord. I mean, that's your main job. That, that, that light on the menorah is never supposed to go out. They, they let it go out in pieces and, and clean the other half while and it well, never goes out. And this opens the door to a perfect opportunity to talk about Samuel told um, Eli that it was going to be taken from his house. And his two sons being corrupt, when they go out to battle, they kind of get their tail whipped a little bit. And so they decide to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. And they take the Ark of the Covenant thinking that magically the Ark of the Covenant is going to deliver them when they don't realize that it's their turning to God that delivers them. Mm -hmm. And that the Ark of the Covenant is, is a, not necessarily a magic piece of furniture. And it's going to magically deliver them without them doing what they need well, to do. Well, it kind of is magic. Well, it, it is, but... Well, bring it I, home I, I, and put it before their God. That's magic's the wrong word. It is definitely a power source from God. I think it's a, a symbol of God that he um, honors. Probably not he, a power source, wrong word. Yeah. A it, power focus through or something. I don't right. know. It, it, it's something that, that shows his name. In the earth. But in essence, when they lose the ark, then the glory of Israel is taken from them. So in essence, they don't have that same standing for a time because they have trespassed to that degree. Well, I would say, just like it says right there, that there was no open vision. The glory of the Lord had already started to depart right. before the ark was taken. Right. So Israel has, has got itself into a pretty bad place. Behold the son of the highest. That's a seer. When I say behold, I actually put an S on that. Beholds the son of the highest. So he actually has personal interaction with the God Jehovah. Right. Okay, this isn't a case of, of you know, feeling good. It isn't a case of, you know, having this burning in your bosom, this is a, more like a face-to-face -face Moses kind of transaction as a seer. And Samuel had that gift again. It was brought back with Samuel to a large degree. That's I mean, it's, it's all the way through the book of Samuel, he's carrying on conversations with the Lord. Exactly, and, and that is the difference that we saw in Numbers 11 when Miriam... And Aaron were complaining about uh, about Moses, and, and the Lord says to them in Numbers chapter 12, and he said, now hear, hear my words. If there be a prophet among you, I will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. 
Yeah, face mm -hmm. to face, mouth to mouth. It's really, really beautiful. And Miriam gets Rohe. in big trouble. <laughs> so he is, it's pronounced Ro. I think it's Ro. Rohe or Rohe. Um, and he's basically in vision and envisions directly from God. Communication direct um, in the form of visions, in the form of direct communication, in the form of the voice just talking to him straight up. I mean, that is what is referring to as a seer. And, and a seer is, is also in scripture when you have a prophet that sees the end from the beginning. Like Nephi, when he showed the whole panorama well, I of would, the earth, he sees. I would argue that prophecy. That there, yeah. Pro, we're going to go into that, believe it or not, in the oh, next yeah. couple of slides. But believe it or not, seer is kind of a a step up from prophet in a sense, in the sense that you can be a prophet by having the testimony of Christ, because the testimony of Christ mm -hmm. is the spirit of prophecy, but. Of course, there's prophet with a capital P and there's prophet with a lowercase p. And we all should be prophets with a lowercase p. Okay? Well, you know, that's the sense of the word. Just, just to get technical, in Hebrew, they actually, in, in Isaiah, it says that Isaiah sees in vision. And we... Which is what I yeah, we don't even We don't even have a word for that directly in English. But in Hebrew, it is a concrete thing to see in vision. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is yeah. I'm a seer. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm first connecting it, okay? you know? And it goes into, in Samuel 9, 9, before, or before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come, let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. So, meaning, there's a clarification there that this level of prophet um, that I would say is prophet with a capital P mm -hmm. is kind of seer, where a prophet with a lowercase p, which all of us should try to have, be, that kind know, of spirit of prophecy. Yeah, we should have, all be at that spirit, point, you know? but we're not prophet with a capital P, right. sort of, you know, there's a difference, so to speak. Okay, so seership, it's a, it's a very beautiful concept, and we did this once before, a prophet, and we showed that prophet and seer is, is actually very close together with just um, a few things. Well, no, that's not true. I'm thinking of prophet and prophecy. I'm confusing myself here for just a second. But the word prophet is a, uh, a continuing family work of the Father. I, I'm using a couple of things. Strong leaders work in the temple of life or mean, his role is to keep the family of God working together. Nabi, or Navi, depending on how you pronounce it, you know, it's more V it's for Navi, the V. I've heard it before. Yeah, yeah, in essence. And in Deuteronomy 18, we kind of reviewed this a couple times before in the book of Deuteronomy, the word of prophet. But I wanted to go into the spirit of prophecy for just a minute, because I had a little aha when I was preparing this on prophecy, and I just thought, this is really fascinating. Because when we go into the word prophecy, um, and we consider the idea of prophecy, the, the spelling is very close together. It just leaves out the yod from prophet to prophecy. So it leaves out the physical hand or arm in it. But it's more abstract, I guess, is the word I would use. <clears throat> Whereas it is uh, noon bet aleph, 
and you could you could say it's very similar in the fact that lead the family pattern for life. It shows the family pattern for life. The strong leader work in the temple of life, all very similar. But what I wanted to point out, Naba instead of Nabi or Nabi or Nava, is prophecy instead of prophet. And the idea is the Lord leads with the spirit of prophecy or the spirit of truth. And the reason I had this epiphany is when you think of prophecy, I have to admit, in times past, most of the time, I thought of prophecy conceptually as just future. Meaning to prophesy is to tell about the future, right? Isn't that the way we normally think of prophecy? Yeah. I mean, that's the way I, I've always like, kind of... Well, I was kind of there, too. <laughs> I, I, I was, I, I've been kind of there, and I, I realized that, that very much that, that that is our normal feeling about prophecy. And I realized, as I put this together, that when you think of the spirit of prophecy being the spirit of truth, you have to ask yourself, what does the word truth mean? I know. Okay, so when you ask, what does the word truth mean? And you realize the Aleph Mentav, being truth, being the first, the middle, and the end, then you begin to realize that prophecy can not only be a prediction of the future. Oh, that's true. It can be a revealing of the past. Right. It can be a revealing of the now. Well, we got that story in the Book of Mormon where the chief judge has been killed and he reveals in the now which is the spirit of prophecy. He is prophesying in the present. He's being shown the past, the present, and the future. So prophecy is not just a prediction of the future. It is literally the revealing of truth. Well, and in the Doctrine of Covenants, we have the definition of truth. Yes. Things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Right. Or I've got it on the on the slide, as it was at first, as it is, and as it will be. So to have the spirit of prophecy is to have the spirit of truth. And, and I just love that it's right there in the letters, as it was being the first letter, and as it will be being the last letter, and then men the waters, the, the now, now, the chaos the birth, of now in a way, or the birth. The mortality that we're in, the present. And this one, I kind of went a little farther than I do sometimes. He's the strong leader, mass, leader's massive perfection. Truth is perfection. But when you start to think about it, and I, 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 I'm going to try to say that, Emeth? Emet? Emmet. Emmet. Oh, you know the way to pronounce it. That's my okay. favorite Hebrew word. From the root, Amen. So I went into the, the gematria of this one and look at it. Look at the numbers, just for sake of a term. The first being strong one. 40, which we know is a completed um, it's period. It's a trial of, that ends in the, victory. The trial that ends in victory. And 400 being a multiplication of that. So in essence, that multiplication of that is that it's a period of, of um, completion, ending in victory, multiplied over and over again. So where you got is that what, what 
emmet means, or almond, or however you say it, that again, I'm sorry, you know, I'm probably slaying it. Emmet. Okay, what we're saying here is that there, it's, it's actually in the definition, it's saying there is no um, relative truth. Okay, the truth is not relative truth. Truth is an established, made sure by verified continuance, meaning it's not just out there. It is absolutely tested completely to the core principles that have happened for eternity. There is either in DNC 93 or 88, I can't remember, you'll have to tell me, um, all truth is circumscribed in its own sphere. And in other words, truth is not affected by whether you or I believe it. Exactly. Because it is. And I, when I was doing the study on this, on this, and I looked at all the root words in Amen, you got to realize that what it's saying about truth is it's absolutely tried and proven. It's not theory. Well, I think it's also fascinating because here you've got the word truth and, and from the root amen, established, made sure. So that's why we say amen. Yes, amen we is to confirm, it, made true, sure, made, made sure. And that's what I'm trying to say. There is no relative truth. Truth right. is as it was, as it is, and as it will be. Yep. There's no room for conjecture. Now... Obviously, our interpretation of truth can be oh sure, you know we can be all over the board, unproven, all of the above. I, I love it with the Ten Commandments. You know, they say you know you can't break the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments will stand. All you can do is break yourself so, against those Ten yes, Commandments. Exactly. You know, but it's it's beautiful right in the Gematria that it actually defines how sure it is, it and is in the root of the word, Amen. Okay, so moving ahead, and Samuel said to Saul. Thou hast done foolishly. So now Saul has been ordained king. He's been king. And now he's already messing up. Before we hardly get, what is it, five chapters down the line? Or five, yeah, five chapters of Samuel down the line. And we already have Samuel saying to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandments of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But he's saying, hey, you blew it. So he, he starts doing the DNC 121, seeking after his, yeah, the, his own glory, vain yeah, ambition. Vain ambitions, he's already messing up. So Saul, it didn't even take five chapters for him to get corrupted. And he started as a good king. Right. You know, and that's what's really hard to see, as he started good. And now the kingdom shall not continue, excuse me, and now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. Now we're speaking of what he says of David. And the Lord hath commanded him to be a captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So Saul is already called on the carpet. He, he already is pursuing his vain ambitions. He's already caught up in his own pride. And Samuel is telling him, hey, you know, your days are numbered. And... <clears throat> He's saying there'll be a man after his own heart. Of course, we know who that man is. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being a king over Israel. So he's basically telling Saul by chapter 15, you know, you're rejected. Now, does Saul gracefully step down? 
not even close. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, does he take the prophet at his word and gracefully step aside? No, that doesn't happen. It's and not <laughs> again, like we talked with last time, where when you look at the time of the judges and then the establishment of King Saul, and then in the end when we later we get the establishment of the righteous king David, who who was righteous as a king, he messed up in his individual personal personal test. But But you show me the nation today that has a king whose whole heart is for the Lord. Well, and it says there, a man after his own heart. Exactly. So, as a king of the nation, Saul, or excuse me, David, fulfills a Davidic king role. Right, and but the the point is that prophetically, we need King Saul. Because we're going to have a wicked king too. <laughs> and, and well, I think this might nature. be a pattern. Yeah. With king Saul <laughs> comes first. There's a pattern here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that was okay. my, my so, sad point. So you notice that in this picture that how tall Saul is compared to Samuel in this picture. And that's very figuratively. He's a head above. Well, it's you know, at his shoulders. Yeah, yeah shoulders. he's a head above. Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Uh, you know, he, he's when he's does not return with Saul. He doesn't even come and see him anymore. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. When you say that the Lord repented, do you ever wonder what that means? You know, I do. I know I know. when I first read it a lot of times, I was thinking, does the Lord need to repent? No. And, and, you know, but that really just means he turned a different direction. Repentance actually to turn away. is to just turn and head back towards God or turn back. And in this instance, it just means he turned and says, okay, I accept you no more, Saul. And in some ways that the Lord repents like that is a way of assuring that we have agency. Yes. And and, and just like we We, know that he called Judas as an apostle. Exactly. Okay. um, So did the Lord make a mistake? I don't think the Lord made a mistake in calling Saul or Judas. I think he gives them an opportunity. I think the Lord follows the concept of innocent until proven guilty, meaning he gives us every chance. Even if he might know we will fail, he will not judge us on what we might do. He waits until we do it. And, and I think that's why the cup of iniquity, you have to wait until there's a fullness of iniquity. You have to wait until when the judgment falls and, you know, that person it comes up to the judgment bar in the next life and everything. And, and, and he says, no, I, I, I wouldn't have t- chosen to do the bad. No, it's said, it's done, you chose, and now the judgment comes. Yeah, it's like that Tom Cruise movie evil. where where they actually get the ability to see in the future and they start trying to to uh, punish people before they commit this crime because they know the crime's going to happen. Okay, well, the Lord doesn't function that way. You know, we do not take, he does not take liberty to correct us until we have done the deed, so right. to speak. Um, now, obviously, he counsels us, but anyway, I don't want to get too off the track with that. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thy horn with oil, and go and send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite.
for I have provided me a king among his sons. And we have, at this time, Samuel the seer, which I love that he's a seer. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine having conversations with the Lord like Samuel does? Wouldn't that be convenient? I guess we all <laughs> could grow to that point. But. I, I don't know, but I think, I think as I've studied all of the prophets, with every vision, with every they become um, sent one experience, the trial follows, and the and it's a huge responsibility. Oh yeah, but I think they also gain experience in in obtaining that connection too. Look not at, on his countenance or on the height of his structure, stature. I'm sorry, stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not a man as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So he's telling Samuel when he sees all the different ones, because remember the story with David, he's out tending the sheep and all the rest of the sons of Jesse are there. And he's saying, no, this, this, this isn't it yet. You haven't got the Not right that one. one. Not that we'll one. Get another one. Okay. And Samuel said to Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him. For we will not sit down till he come hither. So Samuel knows that the one he wants isn't there yet. Um, and Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And from that day forward, Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Amen. So we have this anointing of David even before Saul is officially, he's still on the throne. And Saul doesn't even know this is taking place. So Ramah is just a, a few miles from Shiloh, where, where the tabernacle is. And um, it's it's kind of fun that they, they've discovered where Shiloh is and everything. We'll, we'll, that's fun. We'll show all that in the next, in the next lesson. Okay, well, that's cool. That. I'm glad to hear you're going to go there. And Saul, now we're going to move forward, and we're kind of meantime back where Saul is at. And Saul tell, he said unto his servants, now this time... Saul is having a bad day, and he's got what they said a, a bad spirit. Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. So before Saul is go, requesting David to come. And where do you want to go? Right, I just before you go into the whole thing with Saul and David, I just wanted to bring again this this idea, this son of Jesse that's been anointed king here, David. That this is an end time. Similitude. This is an end time type of channel. I, just I actually to... wanted to go there a lot. I, I, At I the end, I'm actually seeing a Davidic king. <laughs> Did you want me to to read Isaiah 11 where it talks about the sprig of Jesse? Sure. Okay, so just right here, just so to make that connection, and then we'll go to it stronger in the end. But it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this, because Isaiah is written as an end-time prophecy, you can tell that because of the literary structures that tie the whole thing onto an end-time stage, that this David figure was typed in this story that we're doing now but in the end there will be a David that actually doesn't fall 
that yeah, he that actually, actually fulfill the total fulfills world. that Davidic covenant. Yes, I, I think that's beautiful. I, I loved it when I first learned that 50 years ago almost, or 40 years ago. Now I'm revealing too much. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, you're not supposed to take but that. When I was first reading uh, Prophecy Key to the Future by... By Crowler. Crowler, yep. <clears throat> anyway, in the, in the back he had his chart that showed this King David. And I thought, wow, what's that? I remember that. But it's because it's he recognized the kingship of David even in his book. Anyway, so... Back to this story, Saul is this. You know, it, the Lord, the the book actually says that he has a bad spirit with him. Anyway, and he asks for to provide somebody for him to play well and bring to him. It so, makes you wonder if he had some sort of a mental th disorder going on that, or was he was just having a grumpy day. I don't know. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know um, I'm not trying to take less of it, but he sent for someone to play. Um, a musical instrument, and lo and behold, this is how David gets introduced into Saul's palace, so to speak. This is how he gets introduced. Wherefore, Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. Now, the point being is somebody, a servant who told Saul, obviously knew that David played the harp or in this, you know. Well, and David would have been in the fields of Bethlehem, the same fields of Ruth and Boaz. Right. And these, this is going to be the same. It's interesting how this story all interweaves. Jesus, Jesus, the son of David, will be born in Bethlehem. So there's a lot going on. Of ties. A lot here. of connection. And David, David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So he actually gets into the palace or to the household of Saul. And Saul doesn't even know if he's been anointed king or he probably wouldn't have treated him so well. But at this time, he's a little enamored with him because he plays well and it soothed Saul and made him feel better. And it's like sometimes when I'm feeling bad, I like some nice soothing music. But anyway, point being, hopefully I'm not going where Saul went. But, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, um, but when I'm needing a little settling down, I'm a little stressed. I, yeah, I, we all listen to nice we love, music. Beautiful yeah. music sometimes can clinch the spiritual thirst. Okay. <clears throat> and stress. Oh yeah, and stress. And then went out a champion out of the camp of the Palestines. So now we're jumping forward. The Philistines. To, I'm sorry. You said Palestines. <laughs> I did. Philistines. Okay. Oh, that was funny. That is funny, but it's also about the way I am. I'm a little dyslexic at times. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and this is where the story of Goliath starts to come into the equation. And so you have the story. Of, and David actually goes home for a little bit right in here. And the champion Goliath is standing up on the hill, and he's just thrashing Israel and challenging Israel. And his height is six cubits and a span. So... He is, I mean, if 18 inches is a cubit, it's, short it's cubit. Over, it's over nine feet tall. Uh, you know, we're talking nine plus. Okay. And he's just mocking Israel. And he's actually got everybody pretty nervous. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye came out of the set to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. He's pretty uh pretty fierce looking, I'm sure. And I, I imagined you using a, a much more Goliathy voice for that. 
You think I should? Sure, powerful boy. You've got that big, scary voice, I don't know that I can do that now. You got me (laughs) self-conscious. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am I not a Philistine? And ye servants of Saul, cheese you a man, and let him come down unto me. There you go. Okay, Not there's your powerful voice. <laughs> <laughs> Is that just for you? Yes, thank you. Now you can go, ooh. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, when Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So he, he he's intimidating. I can imagine the guy pushing 10 feet, you know, I can see, and, you know, that's above the ceiling in here, and I'm just thinking, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you got to have some courage to stand up to that, right? And he talketh with them, behold, there came up the champion, so this is another time, and there came a champion, the Philistine, the Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them this time. So now David has come back to bring stuff to his family, to his brothers. Right, lunch. Uh, he's bringing lunch back. And he hears this big threat from Goliath. And David spake unto the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to this man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So David's going, Come on, everybody. He's kind of threaten them. And it's interesting to note, though, that David has been keeping the sheep all this time, and he's not without preparation. I think that too often we think, oh, but David had prepared himself his whole life. a lion and a bear? Watching the sheep. He had learned. I'm sure when he was out there tending the sheep sometimes, he was just having a little bit of, I don't know, I wouldn't call it boredom, but leisure time, and he probably just enjoyed the sling. He probably enjoyed, like many you're, of us... You're telling me he was mischievous. <laughs> no, not necessarily. He just enjoyed good sport. Seeing uh, what he could hit with that sling. Yeah, seeing what he could hit. And he probably perfected his skills quite well. So it's not like he was without confidence in his ability. Right. And uh, so he prepared himself to a large degree. Now, that's not to take away from the fact that the Lord delivered him. But the Lord sometimes delivers with preparation. So to speak. It's not just uh, magic. It's kind of like the ark thing. You know, (laughs) it wasn't the ark being magic. It was the people, diligence and turning to God. Obedience, yeah. And obedience. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Here's this little kid that just brought lunch to his brothers. He's not even old enough to be in the army practically. And thy servant will go and fight with this Palestine. Philistine. (laughs) I did it again, didn't I? Yep. Okay, Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. So he's saying, Hey, kid, what do you think? You really kind of think a little more of yourself. He thought David was naive, to be honest with you. He really thought David was naive. And David said, Moreover, the Lord hath delivered me out of the paws of a lion and out of the paws of a bear. He will deliver me out of the hands of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, All right then, go, and the Lord be with thee. So he obviously realizes that, well, you know, this kid is saying in the name of the Lord, I'll do this thing. 
So Saul's not completely without, um, I don't even know why he would decide to go ahead and let David go out and fight him, to be honest with you, except for, obviously, the Spirit of the Lord came on him enough that he allowed it to be so. And he took his staff in his hand. Now, realize the staff is a sign of authority in Hebrew. And he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and he put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had had, even in a script. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So, of course, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of conjecture in there that he picked up five stones for the other four brothers of Goliath, right? Right. You know, and uh, I think that's a fascinating thing. It is fascinating to think about, but he could have picked them up just to have extra ammunition. <laughs> yeah, in case he needed more than one throw. Um, but being skilled, he probably was pretty confident. I know that when you have rehearsed something many, many times, um, you can have some pretty high levels of confidence. And that's not to say pride. Pride and confidence are two different things. You don't ever confuse pride with confidence. Either way, pride is not confidence, and confidence is not pride. <laughs> and you can confuse it either way. I love it when he says this part, and, and the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with a staff, or staffs? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield, but I come at thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, and God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. So David's not afraid of his big words and his big barking Goliath voice. And David just says, you know, in the name of the Lord, I'm coming to you. And I, I love this. I think I put this in this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee. And I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day in, unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now that's confidence. That's what we need to see in these latter days is confidence like that in the Lord. Not in themselves, in the Lord. And this assembly shall know that the Lord saved not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And I love this part. <clears throat> and David put his hand in the bag and took thence the stone and sling it and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone struck into his forehead and fell, and he fell upon his face to the earth. And I guess I did miss the verse I wanted. I wanted to put the verse in there that said, and David ran at him. Right. Uh, I wanted to put that in. I guess I missed it. I meant to. He ran at him. He wasn't just timid about it. He's like, the battle is God's. I'm, here I go. And he was headed into it with all the confidence of the Lord. And he slung the stone, and his accuracy was dead on. Boy, that's a... Was that a pun? That was a pun. <laughs> dead on. And Saul said unto him, this is after the battle now, whose son art thou? Thou young man. And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. So this story connects back to Boaz. This Bethlehemite thing is a type and a shadow of the Davidic king to come, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Davidic king. While you're right there, I'm going to just read it. I can probably just pop in verses every time you start talking about the, <laughs> to the David in the latter days. But 
right there in Isaiah 11 again in verse 10. I just love this because it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, okay, again, which shall stand for an ensign to the people, and the Gentiles shall seek to him, and his rest shall be glorious. And then I love it when you, when you go down a few verses later, it says that um, they, they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines towards the west and spoil them up to the east, and um, their hand will be upon Edom and Moab and the children. In the, this end time, time root of Jesse is going to battle just like David will and is here with Goliath. But the amazing thing is that this end time uh, David is conquering all of the cities in the exact same order as Joshua that David did. Oh, David. Okay. So you're 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 getting just links and links and links to this end time David. So it's just fascinating when you think about that. I well, am in the our son day, of thy servant Jesse. The Goliath isn't a physical giant. It's most probable a technology giant. Well, a technology or the king of Assyria. That's in, what in I mean. Isaiah, but it's, this end but time. it's it's. The, who's got all the technology? The who, technology who, who in weapons. Daniel eleven forecasts devices, well, yes, and then exactly. Joel creates mushrooming clouds of smoke. Yeah, and, you so know. what he's going to go up against is giants of technology, probably. Um, you know, and so it's very interesting to note that that in our day, we we're going to have a leader that has that same courage against the overwhelming odds. Of numbers and forces. Yeah, we, we talked about that of him being a parallel to Gideon in Judges, and and the the other armies against him are just like, the, I mean, when God fights the battle, it's three hundred to what was it thirty three thousand? Yeah, one percent le or less than one percent. Yeah. So it's the type of a tithe of a tithe. Yeah. So it's the holy portion. The holy portion. Yep. Yes. So the, the 300 soldiers of Gideon were a tithe of a tithe. It was the holy portion of Israel that went against them. If the Lord be with us, who, who can, can stand against us? Yeah. Right? Anyway, and Saul took him that day and would let them go no more to his home, to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So this is I put this in here right there at the end because we're about to the end of this reading assignment and you know I, I realize that we could go on and on with all of these lessons we do we could just keep on going I know there's so many and you I, I'm just, just like you can so have much so much fun with the relationship of Jonathan and David. and I put that in there just to show that two things I wanted to show that like like Samuel's warning to the people that if they got a king, he would take their sons. Well, look, Saul said and took him that day and would not let him go more home. Go more. So David can't go home anymore. The king has decreed that David has to stay, so he stays in the palace. But the good fruit of that is then Jonathan and David become covenant brothers, and their friendship uh, is one. For the story it's books. legendary. Yeah, um, it's yeah, one for the storybooks. That, that one will play out when we get so, to yeah, Jonathan's son. It's so. beautiful. So anyway, I wanted to just show you that uh, David shall be king. 
you know, the, the righteous king to come is the David to come, both on two, two levels, a temporal deliverer and the spiritual deliverer. And, you know, this King David of the last days will be, um, a lot of people say Christ is that Davidic king. And I say yes in the ultimate level. He is the yes, ultimate Davidic king. But there is layers underneath him that righteousness is, goes forth. And I, I believe it's teaching to the prophet Joseph Smith, page 337, that says that in the end time there will be a David raised up out of David's lineage. And it's fascinating. If you, any of you got the old book, uh, Prophecy Key to the Future, it, it, it shows, it's actually he's handing oh, it to look. Anyway, <laughs> prophecy key to the future. I, you know, you can go to the the, chart the charts in here. In the back. In the yeah. back. And, yeah, hold that up. and yeah, you right can there. see that, that, and I think it's back at the front, because it's both the front and the back cover. The reign of uh, David is in here. At least it used to be, and I'm trying to see. Hold on just a second. Anyway, I can find it for you. my old version I know had the reign of yeah, David. It's in here. The, I just have uh, to find it. Okay, yeah, the reign of David is actually in the book. The rule of David the Prince is what it says. Okay, the rule of David the Prince. So, you know, it's not like this is new ideas. This has been around a long time. Um, and we, uh, we have much great things to look forward to. Yes. This time, a David will fulfill his role. Right. Side by side. And he, with the ultimate And, and he will king. be raised up against an end time Goliath. Yes, story will play out again. And just with the number 40, the trial ends in victory and the reign of the greatest Davidic king, Jesus Christ. Yep. Anyway, so, you know, just popping out of my head, I was thinking 42 months. 40 being a part and then two months in addition to, you know, might oh, be that period of time shortened. I've often right. thought about that. So, anyway. Just to clarify, because I think you lost some people. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 40, Probably. 42 months is one of the numbers that, that goes along with Daniel's numbers. 42 months being three and a half years, that end time, right. time period of the wrath and Goliath and the king of Assyria. Yeah, it's, so. it's in the book of Revelation. Thank you. And until next time. We'll see you next time.